Good morning, and it's time for WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's a chilly WIP Sunday it promises to be. So no matter where you are, stick with us. Always hot conversation. And first up for hot conversation this morning, Ian Werman, attorney, author, academic, his new book, A Dead Against the Living, and an introduction to originalism. Good morning, Ian Werman. Good morning, sir. One one small correction. It's a, a problem with the aerial font. My name actually is Elon. It has two characters, an I and an L, which both look like I, unfortunately. Elon Werman, thank you. That's right. Okay. Very happy to be here. Happy to have you as well. All right. What is originalism? Well, so originalism is the idea that we should interpret the Constitution with its original meaning. Uh, with the meaning the words would have had to the framers who wrote it and to the public that ratified it. Uh, But I think originalism stands for an even more fundamental proposition, which is the idea that there is a distinction between what the law is and what the law ought to be, and that this is sort of how we assess all laws. And we first have to ask, what does the law actually say? What does it do? What legal effect does it have in the world? And to figure that out, we look at the way the words would have been understood uh, by the people writing it and the people to whom it was directed. The law was directed as a public instruction. And then we have to ask whether that law still ought to be the law or whether we should change the law or amend the law. And that this framework for looking at law applies to the Constitution itself. Okay. The, the Constitution says what it says, and that's all that it says, and we can't imply anything else but what it says. The, that's right. But now, that doesn't mean we have to take a, a literalist or a, a super strict interpretation of the Constitution. Justice Scalia used to say, I believe in a reasonable interpretation. Uh, so there are ways to read uh, st- uh, statutes and provisions or texts in the Constitution uh, reasonably, or you can be too literal or hyper-literal. And uh, that latter approach is often confused with originalism, uh, but I think it's very different. Uh, the idea is original public meaning. How would it have been understood? And that doesn't mean it has to be a hyper-literalist interpretation. It means a reasonable interpretation that would have been made sort of by the the public audience to whom it was directed or the legal officials to whom the Constitution was written as an instruction. All right, but how it would would have been interpreted in 1880 would be very different than how it would have been interpreted in 2017. True or false? Well, the, the original meaning of any constitutional provision doesn't change. So if by interpretation we mean the meaning changes, I don't think that's true, certainly not as a matter of at least a theory of originalism, whether the Constitution's provision, whether this original meaning applies to different contexts and new situations and has to be applied in updated contexts. That's clearly true. So, uh, for example, 
uh, the founders could never conceive of the internet, and yet the First Amendment, you know, the Congress shall not abridge the freedom of speech, applies to speech on the internet. The Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable searches and seizures applies to GPS devices that police officers put on your vehicle, right? These are things that the framers in 1789 could not have conceived of, uh, and yet what the, the meaning of the provisions that they wrote unreasonable searches and seizures, being safe in our papers, things and effects. You know, these can be updated over time to new factual contexts. And in that sense, they can change. That seems to me it's like being a little bit pregnant. Either it means what it says or it doesn't. How do you mean? Yeah. I mean, to, to I think the, the response to that, right, is... Uh, uh, it does say what it says, uh, and the founders had enough foresight uh, to write the provisions with, uh, you know, with a certain amount of breadth, a certain amount of generality, so that they, it could be an enduring constitution and apply to uh, future generations, which is what the founders hoped. So it does say what it says. That's true. And, and fortunately, the, what it says is capacious enough to be adapted to future factual and scientific and technological uh, changes in, in society. All right. Well, correct me if my example's a bad one, but an example of what I think I'm going for is a woman's right to choose what to do with a pregnancy. It's a woman's right to privacy. The constitutional framers couldn't have anticipated the options that would be open to a woman today to determine what to do with her pregnancy and the circumstances under which to do it. Could they? So that's certainly correct. Uh, but there is, we have to keep in mind that the founders, I think, knew. They knew that there were circumstances and, and, and future possibilities that they could never conceive of, uh, which is why uh, they wrote a constitution that doesn't actually require very much, uh, particularly when we look at the Bill of Rights. Uh, the Bill of Rights protect those rights most essential to the success of a free society. It protects uh, the political rights, things like free speech, free press, petition, assembly. Uh, protects rights of religious conscience. You know, protects rights of criminal defendants uh, uh, because, uh, you know, in a free society, before the state is going to deprive you of life, liberty, or property. It has to go through due process of law. You need an indictment with a grand jury. You need a trial by jury. You have a right to, to counsel, you know, and, and so the, those are the kinds of things that the framers protected uh, in the original Bill of Rights, the, those rights most essential to the success of a free society. But other than that, other than that, they left most things to the democratic process because they knew that there were things they couldn't foresee because they knew that we would evolve and progress as a society. Uh, and so they left so much to the democratic process. So, you know, it's often said that, uh, uh, well, shouldn't our Constitution be living and breathing? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think our Constitution is sort of fixed in meaning, but the democracy that the Constitution created for us is a living and breathing democracy. And this is, in fact, this is, in fact, what was happening with the abortion laws. Uh, to go back to your example, before the famous Roe v. Wade case, uh, many states, through the democratic process, were dramatically liberalizing uh, the abortion laws. And so there's a difference between what the Constitution requires 
you know, whether it requires states to protect uh, the right to abortion, and what the Constitution permits. And it certainly permits states to do it as an original understanding. And in that sense, again, I think the Constitution could evolve and, and was capacious uh, in that sense. All right. Another example, slavery. Certainly when the original document was written, slavery was throughout the land. But yet we abhor slavery today and we fought a war to end slavery. How would originalism yeah. address that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, so originalism uh, doesn't, you know, mean going back to for the entire Constitution, only looking at the meaning in 1789. It's also looking at the meaning of the amendments to the Constitution uh, that have been, you know, properly included. Uh, and slavery was abolished in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Uh, and thankfully so, right? Rightfully so. The original Constitution did have this sort of original sin, so to speak. It had this major, this major flaw that it didn't, uh, it didn't get rid of slavery. And that's a discussion that we can have on whether the original Constitution uh, creates this debt against the living, right? That's the title of my book is A Debt Against the Living, this idea that the Constitution continues to create a debt against the future because we benefit from it. Uh, and we can have the discussion about whether the fact that slavery once existed uh, under the Constitution that somehow it precludes us from uh, being bound by the Constitution today as it's been amended to get rid of slavery. But for purposes of originalism, uh, the, the slavery issue was resolved by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, you know, freeing the slaves, uh, giving equal rights uh, to all citizens of all races, uh, and the, the right uh, to vote to all citizens of all races. All right. The right to vote for women. Another example. I mean, the original Constitution was written at a time when the right to vote was granted to free white and property-owning males. Yes, yeah, so, and that's another example where uh, there, you know, consider that there was a flaw in the Constitution. The founders actually gave us a mechanism to amend the Constitution, and we've used it. We've used it to end slavery, we've used it to enfranchise uh, African Americans, and we used it to enfranchise women in the, in the 19th Amendment in, in 1920. And so originalism certainly has no problem with updating the Constitution to modern times if we uh, do it through the lawful amendment process. And uh, to be sure, there are lots of things in the Constitution, by the way, as I've, I've, as I've hinted, uh, that can be updated without an amendment in the sense of being updated to new factual uh, circumstances, things like the First Amendment applying to the Internet and, you know, the Fourth Amendment applying to GPS devices uh, put on cars. Uh, but, you know, to the extent that uh, there are new factual circumstances and new moral understandings, right, we do evolve. We do progress over time. Our moral understanding does change. Well, the Constitution does give us a mechanism uh, to change it, uh, and we've used it uh, in a lot, of, uh, a lot of cases where there have been major moral evolutions of the kind that, that, that you've described. Pornography, another example. Certainly, dirty pictures during the Thomas Jefferson's time were probably very different than something you might see today. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. And then I guess the question becomes, what is the meaning of free speech under the First Amendment? Is that 
uh, include pornography or does it not, or can there be reasonable uh, restrictions? Uh, and certainly the problem of originalism, I think uh, the original understanding of the First Amendment uh, probably allowed, uh, you know, there's actually a, a debate over whether the First Amendment allowed some, you know, restrictions on speech. You know, there are these two views, whether the First Amendment only prohibited prior restraint, meaning you could be free to publish whatever, but once you publish it, you know, you are subject to a certain punishment. So that's one view. And then another view was, well, the First Amendment, the original meaning was really broader. It was meant to uh, protect a lot more. You can't be punished for certain kinds of speech. Um, and it's actually a hard question as a, as a matter of originalism, what's the better answer? But our doctrine today, our doctrine today, which tries to get at you know, the, 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 the best meaning of the, of the First Amendment, uh, is that generally people are free to, to speak and publish things like uh, pornography included unless they fall into certain historical exceptions. And these historical exceptions are things like incitement, right? does it incite violence? or fighting word, you know, um, um, if you're trying to instigate a conflict with some, with like a physical conflict with someone. So that's almost never used, by the way, uh, as an historical exception. And I believe there was an exception for obscenity for a long time the court used, you know, uh, to sort of allow the, uh, the states to police uh, pornography laws. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that's also falling out of fashion. But is there the old maxim in law? Yeah. I don't know what pornography is, but when I see it, I know it. That's right. You don't. You, you don't know it. Uh, no, that's that, that's exactly right. It's it's very hard. Uh, there are some concepts where it's very hard to to define sort of in the abstract, and but then you know you say, uh, well, I know it when I see it, uh, and um, you know that's probably true. Um, but you know, to the extent it becomes difficult to police certain lines and create certain distinctions. Uh, you know, between, you know, say pornography and art or something like that. You know, I think the, the best answer is probably uh, to, to minimize government intervention uh, uh, in, in, in those kinds of situations because, it, you know, it's, uh, it falls under this free expression umbrella. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning on WIP Sunday Elan Werman, author of the new book, A Dead Against a Living, an Introduction to Originalism, a Certain Way of Looking at the Constitution and the Law That's Worthy of Our Consideration. My name's Peter Solomon. Elan, I need you to stay with me. I've got to run a few commercials. We'll be right back no after problem. we'll be right back after these messages. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Elan Werman, his new book, A Dead Against a Living. An Introduction to Originalism, a Way of Looking at the Constitution and Our Legal System Today. My name's Peter Solomon. Ilan, you make it all sound positive. Is there a downside to originalism? Well, the, there's, in a sense, a downside to originalism for everybody interested in interpreting the Constitution in the sense that originalism, I, you know, that doesn't always lead to someone's uh, preferred result. In that sense, I'm not saying, you know, of course, that the Constitution is perfect and that it can't be amended. Uh, in that sense, you know, originalism may be imperfect, but that goes to the question of whether the Constitution is imperfect. But I'm going to a slightly different point, which is in today's society, uh, 
uh, a lot of litigation uh, brings in uh, the Constitution. People try to make the Constitution uh, say a lot more than it does. They try to make it require their preferred political uh, position. So I've seen originalists, by the way, um, make uh, arguments uh, that uh, uh, that uh, uh, libertarian originalists make argument that that a woman's right to choose is constitutionally required, that abortion protection for abortion is constitutionally required, and I've heard conservative originalists make arguments uh, that the Constitution uh, actually requires states to protect uh, the pro-life position to to actually requires the pro-life position because, you know, if a fetus is considered a life, well, the state can't deprive the fetus of that life without due process of law. You know, that process hasn't been given. And so I've heard, you know, I mean, not a lot. I mean, I've, I've not heard this a lot, but I've heard some originalists make the argument. And so what do we see here? We see that two, the two sides to debate often try to make the Constitution through originalism say more than it does. Whereas, you know, in reality, the, the original Constitution left so much to the democratic process, which means that this might lead to a, a liberal political results. It might lead to libertarian political results. It might lead to conservative political results. Uh, and, you know, is that, is that bad? No, I don't think so at all. But I think it's bad from a lot of people's perspective because, who tend to try to make the Constitution um, – who try to make the Constitution say a lot more than it does. And, and I don't, and you know, to me, it's a virtue that the Constitution doesn't say it, but for a lot of people, it's certainly frustrating. I don't think there's a bad side to it, but it's certainly frustrating. Well, we're looking for absolutes in the law. That would make it all much easier. Certainly clarity in the law and constraint in the law uh, is easier than the opposite. You know, I don't know if I would call it um, looking for absolutes, I certainly think that it's true that some originalists uh, focus too much on absolutes, on one right answer. You know, their claim would go like, well, originalism would constrain judges uh, because it leads to one clearly correct answer in any given case. I certainly think that's probably wrong. I think properly understood originalism is much more capacious than that. I think originalism, you know, the, the Constitution, uh, what was written in a way that creates some ambiguity, some indeterminacy, some vagueness, right? No, no law is free of those problems. There are always going to be indeterminacies and ambiguities and vagueness. And this means, I think, the properly understood originalism will often lead to a, a range of plausibly correct constitutional answers to any given question. So I don't think it's absolute, uh, but I do think it's constraining, right? Because it's a range of plausible answers, but it's not a, but, but, but it's a circumscribed range. It's not an infinite range. Uh, the range could still be limited enough to, to refute prevailing non-originalist interpretation of the Constitution or, or something like that. But, but you're right. I think, I think often uh, some originalists, you know, too often focus on finding one fixed, clearly constraining, absolute answer. And I don't think the world or the Constitution or language uh, is that simple. But if there's no one answer, then what's a judge to do? So that is a, a terrific question that I uh, talk a little bit about 
uh, toward the end of the book on this idea of, of constitutional liquidation. Liquidation meaning sort of fixing and ascertaining. Uh, the founders had this idea where um, if the Constitution is indeterminate, uh, potentially could uh, mean multiple things or go either way on a particular question. Well, eventually, the correct answer will be settled, will be liquidated, will be fixed, ascertained through a, a series of uh, deliberations and adjudications across all the branches of government. So a famous example uh, of this is whether the Bank of the United States is constitutional. There was a, a, a great debate um, uh, in Congress, in the first Congress, in the late 1780s, early 1790s, uh, over whether the federal government had the power to create a Bank of the United States as necessary and proper to sort of effectuate Congress's other uh, enumerated powers. And so there was the, the nationalists like the Hamiltonians and, and George Washington, who believed that the bank was constitutional. But then you had the Jeffersonians and, and James Madison, who said, well, no, the power to create a bank is a great power. It needs to be specifically enumerated. There is no enumeration of power to create a bank of the United States. And so you can't smuggle in this power through something you know, as elastic as the necessary and proper clause. So that was the debate. And the original Constitution, I don't think, clearly answers the question of whether the Bank of the United States is constitutional. But you had the first Congress decide the question. They debated this with the Madisonian position on one side and the Hamiltonian position on the other side. And they enacted uh, a statute creating the Bank of the United States. So they resolved, they decided, they, they considered the constitutional question and decided that it was constitutional. The president, uh, George Washington, he signed the bill. Uh, over time, uh, the bill had to be reenacted. The Bank of the United States had to be reauthorized. And this debate sort of continued. And eventually, the Supreme Court, under John Marshall, upheld the power to create the Bank of the United States. And so finally, when James Madison was president, he was confronted with a potential uh, reauthorization of the Bank of the United States that he had opposed on constitutional grounds in the 1780s and 90s. But when he was president, right, in the, um, the 1810s or 18-teens, he refused to veto the bill because he said the constitutional question had been settled. Although he originally argued that the Constitution meant one thing, uh, he, he said that it had been settled through a series of mature discussions and deliberations in the first Congress, uh, in the president, um, uh, and the cabinet, among the states, in the federal judiciary, that it has become settled. The question has, in a sense, become liquidated. And I think that's a pretty decent way of resolving indeterminacies and ambiguities, because it requires all sort of the political actors and branches of government to deliberate and reflect and come to some sort of settlement or, or agreement. Uh, and I think that's, you know, it's not a perfect way of doing it. Certainly, you know, it could be better if we had a system with zero ambiguity and, and zero indeterminacy. But I'll consider that's not such a bad way of, of resolving the uncertainties in the Constitution. Hmm. What do you want us to get from the book? If we learn one thing, what should that be? Well, 
so the book is it's short. It's only 135 pages. Uh, it's a short. It's an introduction to and defense of originalism and the founding. So it's intended, you know, for the college and law students, the policymakers, the general readers, your listeners who are interested in uh, the direction of the Supreme Court in the coming years, uh, and to understand what all this fuss is about, about constitutional interpretation and living, breathing constitution and the dead hand of the past. But if there's one thing, one thing that I want my readers to take out of this book is this idea uh, that a full defense of originalism requires that we defend the founding. It requires that we defend the work of the founders, what they try to accomplish in a constitution, what the constitution for a free society has to accomplish. And again, in and under 135 pages, it's basically like the tweet version of a book, you might say. Uh, the, the, the book tries to describe what the founders tried to accomplish in the constitution. And I hope my readers take that away. And I'd like to say thank you to Elan Worman, author of the new book, a new book about the Constitution and a whole lot more, that new book being called A Debt Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism. Elan, do you have a website? Uh, I, have a, I don't have a personal website. I'm a fellow at the Stanford Constitutional Law Center, and you can find uh, my bio up there. And uh, then, of course, the book is also on Amazon, so I will adopt Amazon as my website. The Man, Elan Werman, the book, A Dead Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism. Thank you, Elan Werman. Thank you. My pleasure. And it's WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And let's give a cheer for those people out there running in the Philadelphia Marathon. It's cold. It was wet. They're out there doing it. And for that, they're to be congratulated. So if you happen to be out and about, and encounter a marathoner, give them the high sign and tell them you admire what they're doing. Now, it's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back after these messages. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. And we're going to talk now with a man, intriguing man with an important story to tell. His name, Donato Tremuto. His new book, Life's Bulldozer Moments. How Adversity Leads to Success in Life and Business. Good morning, Mr. Tremuto. Good morning, Peter. How are you today? I'm fine. What's a bulldozer moment? Well, for me, and I think for most people, I think it's um, an experience that has had a profound impact um, and that has almost physically impacted you. Uh, it has the ability, I think, to bring you right down to your knees, as it had for me when I lost my hearing. Uh, at age uh, eight, and I think it's a moment when you decide um, whether you will survive or will you submit to defeat, and, um, you know, I titled the book Life's Bulldozer Moments because I think we all had those moments sometime in our lives where we have been impacted by a physical, a mental, or some type of a severity that it has hit us all hard, and I really think that you're not measured so much by what has hit you. What you're measured by is what you learned from that experience and how you get right back up and right back into the arena. What happened to you? At age eight, uh, and it wasn't just one event, uh, at age eight um, I woke up one morning and um, uh, could not hear. And um, for years thereafter I, I suffered a very significant speech impediment 
uh, bullied by, you know, students. I had experienced uh, nearly five surgeries in the time period of when I was eight until I was 17. And my life was pretty much sheltered. And, you know, I was the one that um, was not supposed to succeed. And, in fact, um, I had failed the fifth grade. I was rejected from every single college that I had applied to. Yet I think during those years when I was bullied and denied the right to be heard, I really entered into the quietude of an intellectual curiosity that helped me to understand that life is not about the bad things that happen to you. Life is about getting right back up and going back into the arena. It's almost, you know, I had the pleasure of seeing the movie last night, Wonder, and I, I could really relate to August Pullman, and uh, that story had a huge impact on me last night. And I wrote the book because I know that there are so many other people out there that have experienced what I have experienced, yet they look at my life today, which has been very successful, and I don't want uh, people to see my life through the lenses of today. I want them to know that to get to where I am today, it took an enormous uh, amount of tenacity and resilience, and and so it's really the the reason why I wrote the book. Ten years ago, I never would have revealed the story to anyone, and I think that that was really a waste of valuable um, relationships, and I think that the last six, seven years has been very uplifting to me as I have shared this story with others. But who gave you that tenacity? Where did it come from? Well, it's very interesting. I think that for me, um, and by the way, it wasn't just the loss of my hearing. Uh, my brother then was uh, lost his life in a car accident um, uh, three years after I lost my hearing. My sister-in-law, who had become my speech pathologist after my hearing was restored, uh, she uh, lost her life uh, in childbirth due to a medication error. And then my grandfather was uh, shot uh, at his home in a uh, burglary. So it was one, one bulldozer moment after another. And so what I did is I, um, I couldn't hear a lot in my surroundings, but I ended up identifying heroes. And for me... Um, Senator Robert Kennedy became a hero for me, you know, watching his transformation at one of the most loneliest moments of his life, the loss of his brother, and how he pulled himself out of it, and how he he found himself and he discovered himself through the reading of poetry. And for me, it was reading his uh, writings and Dr. Martin Luther King and saying, gosh, if I ever get my hearing back, and I'm able to do what the normal person is able to do, I'm going to transform my life. So I think that, and the good part about when you go through one bulldozer moment, you grab those golden nuggets that helped you get through the last one. And, you know, for me, it wasn't just the the loss of a brother and the loss of a sister-in-law. I was uh, also um, tragically hit on 9-11, my two friends and their three-year-old son, uh, who were visiting me at my home in Maine, uh, they got on the second flight uh, that hit the South Towers. I had taken that flight every single week. Um, I had my company in California. I should have been on that flight. I was not on the flight. They were on the flight. And that was, in many respects, a moment um, that helped me even further. I'm not going to say that that wasn't a bulldozer moment that you know almost destroyed me because it almost did. But I was able to learn from all the other moments that you will get through it and you can do better. And, you know, after 9-11, we started two foundations in the last 15 years. And I've taken what 
normally would be um, a horrible experience um, for anyone. But I've taken that experience and I have found a path to make good out of it. Again, though, this all came from within you. Nobody was there to say you can do it. You can do it. I had more people say I couldn't do it. Um, and I think that um, that mantra in life, I had wonderful parents, and I should not dismiss that. My parents were my greatest uh, ally. Um, they, uh, they believed in me, and it was a time when there was not a lot of surgical procedures for hearing loss. But they were there. And uh, you're right. I think that, you know, you have to find your, your you know, tenacity from within. And, um, you know, in many respects, uh, even when I'm faced with the toughest problems today, you know, I know I can go back within myself and search. And I think you have to take yourself to the darkest moments um, of those challenges to come out of it a better person. And I think, you know, Senator Kennedy was a great example of that. You know, he had a very, very tormentuous six months after the assassination of his brother and you know he came out of it a better person he discovered himself and i found that each time i have come out of it i have discovered something different about myself and i think 2001 is a great example prior to 2001 i'm not so sure that i was as philanthropic as i am today but uh, through that experience it forced me to dig even deeper and uh, you know i've never I have never believed that it's about doing great things in life. I think what I've learned through all this is about doing little things that have the capacity to drive great change. And, you know, I think that those moments really do um, lead you down paths that you would normally uh, have not discovered. <clears throat> and what are you doing? So, you know, it's very interesting. So, you know, I have a balance between my professional and my philanthropic life. You know, I am the CEO. I've been in healthcare for the last uh, almost 40 years. And, uh, you know, I think what I've learned, and I write about this in the book, is that, you know, you also learn about your leadership principles. And I think that one of the leadership qualities I have brought to the table today is compassionate leadership. Listen, I have to make decisions. I'm CEO of Tiffany Health, which is a publicly traded company on NASDAQ. Uh, we're one of the largest organizations out there that um, provides uh, physical fitness to more than 15 million um, seniors, 65 and older. And I think that what has been molded in me is my compassionate leadership, that you can get things done. And I think because I had such a severe disability in my life, I spend time with my executives. I spend time with you know my colleagues in the company to make sure that they can be the best that they can be. And listen, there's a time when, you know, the company may not be right for them or they're not right for the company, and that's not a tough decision to make. But I do think that compassionate leadership is what's needed uh, in companies, and I think it's what's needed in organizations today. My two not-for-profit, so the Tremuto Foundation was founded after the um, after the tragic uh, deaths of my two friends and their three-year-old. Uh, I wanted to do something that honored them. And so uh, each year we honor uh, an award uh, through scholarships, although we at times go up to four, we um, award two scholarships to students who have experienced a bulldozer moment. And it doesn't have to be a hearing loss, but it could be the loss of a parent. It could be that they were, you know, bullied in school and, you know, they just need that hope and they need that inspiration. 
And each year we award and we stay with them. It's not only a financial scholarship, we also mentor them. In addition to that, at the foundation, each year we honor two or three, possibly four organizations across the world whose vision it is to make the world more just and fair. And so, you know, we have civil, you know, educational grants uh, across the world. We have human rights grants that we are supporting. And then the other uh, organization I started about six years ago, and again, that's what a bulldozer moment does. A bulldozer moment isn't about just staying on one path. You're constantly, and I talk about this in my book, too many people in the world are problem solvers. I think we need problem seekers, and I think you have to go out there and find the problem and not wait for it to you know, morph into something bigger. And so about six years ago, or seven years ago, I, um, I uncovered the following fact that in our lifetime, one billion people will go to their graves prematurely because they never had access to a healthcare worker. Six and a half million are children who die each year because they had no access to a healthcare worker. I, I, I just find that uh, uh, appalling. And what we did is the company that I had founded had a medical technology app that could be used by physicians, nurses, and, you know, villagers. And so we donated it to Healthy Villages. That's the organization now that I founded seven years ago. And Healthy Villages is providing technology in the most rural communities here in the United States and in emerging countries. And we're putting that technology in the hands of villagers to help to reduce infant mortality, maternal mortality, and pediatric uh, mortality. The results have been astounding. In a small village in East Africa, we blowed infant mortality from 100 deaths per 1,000 births down to 30. 70 more babies per 1,000 births are alive today because of healthy villages. We've built a maternity war because when I was there a few years ago, there were you know, pregnant women on the dirt floors about ready to deliver their babies. And I said, how could this be? And so we, we donated the money to build a maternity ward so that every woman would have the same opportunity that an American woman has in terms of how they deliver their baby. So Healthy Villages stands for Heal the Villages. We're now in 12 different countries. Um, we're addressing rural aging here in the United States with my corporate company, Tivity Health. Rural aging is a significant concern to me. You know, more than 70% of those who are 50 and older are living in suburban America, and they're all alone. And we're working together with Tivity Health uh, and my foundation to see if we can drive forward how we connect them, and it probably will be connection through Internet and Wi-Fi. But it behooves me that the population that has made our country great is a population that's aging uh, in loneliness and isolation. And so with our flagship product, Silver Sneakers, and with Healthy Villages, we're, we're tackling that problem right now. Do you have a website? We do. We have um, certainly uh, Tivity Health. Um, one could go on to either Tivity Health or silversneakers.com to learn more about um, what we're doing in the, um, the field of aging. Uh, the Torito Foundation, again, you could just Google it, uh, as well as Healthy Villages. All three have, have websites. And are you doing something special with the profits from the book? Yes, I'm glad you raised that. <clears throat> so all profits from the book uh, go to the uh, Torito Foundation. And, um, you know, you just heard what we're doing there. It's helping young children 
Um, so yes, any book, um, any book sale, um, all profits will be donated to the Tremuto Foundation. And my guest this morning, Donato Tremuto, reminds us of an old phrase, life may handle you a bulldozer moment, but a bulldozer can knock down something that's so good and help you build something better. And that's what he's done with his story and with his interview today. Thank you, Donato Tremoto, Tremoto for joining us this Thank morning. Thank you, Peter. Make it a great day. You too. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Thank you this morning's producer. Couldn't do the show without you and without Ann Tideman Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer. You're critical to the operation. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Finally, there's nothing left to say, but see you soon.